I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today, my regular co-host Joe is unavailable as the cloud of depression cast over him by yesterday's Spurs performance against United has yet to lift and he's in no state to record. That's actually not true at all. He's just unavailable. But I had to take that opportunity to have a little bit of a dig as Arsenal actually won a game of football yesterday. As for today's show, our old friend, fellow Gooner and regular contributor of the pod, Yoni is joining me, and we're both delighted to be in the virtual company of our special guest for this episode. He's a writer and editor for the likes of BBC Three, Vice, Planet Football, and Mel magazine, as well as being the author of What Would Jurgen Klopp Do? A book that tells the story of and shares lessons from Liverpool's reigning Premier League winning manager, Jurgen Klopp. Today's guest is also an avid hammer, so we'll definitely be chatting a fair bit about West Ham United on this call. We welcome Tom Victor to the United Mates Football Podcast. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you with us, and how are you doing today? Thanks for having me on. I'm doing all right, yeah. Just enjoying uh, the UK kind of opening back up, or England opening back up for, you know, pubs, barbers, gyms, everything. It's kind of feeling a little more normal now. Make sure to, to pace yourself. Don't don't enjoy yourself too much all at once. Uh, but Yanni, well, likewise. I this, so I don't kind of rush straight out to the public area. <laughs> Yeah, we're raining, raining you in. Um, but yeah, thanks again for, for joining us. Yanni, of course, cheers for being my co-host for today how have you been uh yeah pleasure to be back i've been i've been all right you know as tom says sun shining things are opening i really need a trip to a barber before i can really go into any pub with any amount of dignity um but good to be here good to be back on and talking about football as always um and as regulars will know we like to start it with an icebreaker and an icebreaker that often very tenuously uh, relates to our guest. Um, and Tom, you post quite a bit on Twitter about food. You're not averse to memes and screenshots from The Simpsons, especially. So today I ask you, what fictional food item or restaurant do you wish you could try? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I mean, no, that is, that is a, uh, that's a big one. Um, I mean, obviously, I have to make some sort of reference to The Simpsons. I feel like I'm kind of duty bound to do that. And um, just as ridiculous as the concept of the restaurant is, I feel like dining at Uncle Mo's family feedback would be the experience that, it, you know, that everyone needs at some point in their life. Just, uh, you know, deep fried American classics and uh, birthday songs throughout the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be an excellent experience, I'm sure. That There's also just a whole range, I guess, if you pick a restaurant, you've got a whole menu to choose from there. Exactly. Um, my, my first thought was to go to uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and sort of anything from the Chocolate Factory, but specifically the edible wallpaper always sort of fascinated oh. me a little bit. And I don't ever see kind of decorated wallpaper without thinking or kind of initially feeling that might taste of something, uh, only to be <laughs> kind of instantly disappointed. Um, how about you, Kai? What's your favorite fictional food item? 
I nearly went with like a Wonka themed thing because I was thinking about that episode of Futurama where they go to the Slurm factory. Um, but I think actually I'm going to go to a, another favorite show of mine, Twin Peaks and the Double R Diner where they serve a lovely piece of pie. And I think if I could have a beverage to go along with that, I'll I'll jump on the the Mo Sislak train and and why not have a flaming Mo just to wash it down? Yeah. Yeah, that, that also sounds sounds very good. Um, I'm sure our listeners will have their own strong ideas about uh, what food they'd like to have from, from the world of fiction. Uh, but now that ice is well and truly broken, we move <laughs> from ice to vice and your career in journalism, Tom, very awkwardly. Um, as, <laughs> as Kai mentioned, you've written and edited for a number of diverse publications and media, uh, mostly but not exclusively about football. Um, and various aspects of the game that we love. And in each case, your passion for football and the small details of matches and seasons that might otherwise be forgotten in time really comes through. When did you realize that writing about this passion was something you wanted to do for a living? And what challenges did you face in making this happen and also finding a unique voice in what is an increasingly crowded field? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a good way of framing it. Um, I guess like I, I come from a family which contains a few journalists so I know a lot of people will maybe not see that as a potential career path for them from a young age but you know I was surrounded by that growing up and it had always been something that I thought okay this is just a career that people like me do so I guess I was pretty lucky in that sense um, did a postgrad diploma in journalism at Cardiff and then kind of worked my way through a few kind of different publications to kind of maybe weird trajectories sort of working in the online gambling space, uh, writing quite a bit about poker at the time, and I guess still a bit now. Then worked for Joe.co.uk when they launched in the UK and went from that to, yeah, decided to go freelance about four years ago and realised, okay, I need a niche now. So <laughs> um, I guess that became kind of, you know, within football, but things that people don't maybe necessarily consider worthy of the amount of words that I used to describe them you know um there, there's kind of a running joke between me and some friends where if we're watching a game at the pub someone like pulls off a nutmeg or a rainbow flick or something like that and they'll just turn to me and go all right a thousand words on my desk Monday <laughs> so, there we go um so yeah I guess that's uh that's a kind of not quite linear but yeah the kind of direction it's taken I guess so Tom, when it comes to your work for Vice and Planet Football in particular, uh, rather than going down the ultra mainstream route of transfer stories, yeah. and tactical analysis type pieces that you often see being sort of regurgitated around the footballing world wide web, as you referenced, you, you tend to tap into the more niche, almost kind of hipster stories that the, the beautiful game has to offer. So what is it that personally interests you so much about the lesser told stories behind these great football personalities and teams? Uh, I guess I've always had a bit of love for kind of not quite the maverick, but kind of the the underappreciated. You know, you just you go on football Twitter any day of the week, you'll make a comment about Messi or Ronaldo, and you'll have people who like their identity is Messi fan or Ronaldo fan. You don't get people who have that with, or at least not as much with with players who are clearly very talented, but uh, unlikely to ride that talent to the top of the game through the kind of consistency that those guys have. You know, so. I think the first piece that I wrote for Planet Football in 2017 was about Alessandro Diamanti, who anyone who follows me will know I'm a big fan of his. This is a man who 
Uh, it's known for taking 13 shots in a game that ended nil-nil. So, <laughs> you know, you picture yourself when you're growing up as, you know, what kind of footballer are you going to be? You're going to be the guy that wins everything, or are you going to be the guy that just has a lot of fun playing football? And that's the kind of player that I lean towards. And I feel like if you can see the amount of fun they're having, you can kind of bounce off that. And hopefully that reflects a bit in some of what I've written about them. Yeah, Diamante's a very fun player. I feel like he would try to almost score every corner kick that he took, and he was the one who made um, taping your wrist cool before Jamie Vardy. So uh, <laughs> a lot of fun memories of Alessandro. Um, but on the flip side of these fascinating and often bizarre anecdotes and narratives that emerge in publications like the ones we mentioned, Vice and Planet Football, has the obsession with footballers' lives crossed a line? And sort of what I mean by that is, have we as a general public developed the expectation that these professional athletes continue to entertain us even on non-match days, just like through their Twitter or their brand or even when it comes to snooping into their social lives? Um, yeah, I think we've, we've seen a bit of that in the last few years with what is fairly evidently certain people are sharing the same social media team or the same kind of social media voice. And as with pretty much anything like that, it will jump the shark pretty quickly people will enjoy it and then there'll be the second wave of people enjoying it after the fact and as with anything in football because there's so much of it it gets pretty tired pretty quickly in terms of player socialize and you know that kind of aspect of the game I think we're seeing quite a bit um recently with Jesse Lingard um how okay as, as soon as you're not kind of obsessing over that as soon as you're realizing actually no these are real people who have shit going on in their lives that is no different from shit going on in anyone's life maybe yeah maybe dial it back maybe don't bring it up every time you see their name and then the ability to express themselves will come back when they're not having every single detail poured over mm. well i guess touching back on uh, another piece of your work and you wrote a book not too long ago uh, yep. what would jürgen klopp do life lessons from a champion and presumably Throughout the writing process, you gathered a good insight into the mind and the man that is Jurgen Klopp. And obviously, he's quite an intense fella. So almost everyone should just read the book. Could you give us a bit of an idea of what it might be like to be inside Jurgen's head? What, what makes him fit? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess um, a lot of it is obviously kind of fictionalized based on the, the persona that he presents outwardly. I think that's the only real way that I could have written it, you know, just... A lot of it is is very kind of light touch, just imagining what it would be like to, for example, I've got a section, you know, what it would be like to go for a barbecue around Jürgen Klopp's house or, you know, what it, what it would be like to hang out with him uh, just like in, in non-football situations. But it's very little of this is based on like people's actual experience of it. It's It's kind of brought together by, as I say, by what he presents outwardly. And yeah, it's just, it's designed to be kind of, Lighthearted, kind of fun, soft touch look at, you know, I guess there's not that many people in football who have the kind of charisma of Klopp and have been able to sustain that while being at the top of the game as well. Like you will, you'll often see the kind of, oh, you've got your charismatic guys on one side of it and they're kind of known for being journeymen. They're known for being kind of going back and forth team to team. So, I mean, the one that kind of jumps out at me who's just returned to management, someone like Sosa Cosmi, who is, you know, a huge character in Italian football, but he's a character because he's one of the guys who's been 
dotted around rather than because he has the association with one team, let alone one hugely successful team in this country. Um, so I think, yeah, just the ability to create that aura around himself for Klopp while still achieving so much is, you know, it's it, it sets him apart from what we've come to expect from elite managers, I guess. Is that what drew you to him as someone you wanted to write a book about? Was it the charisma or was it, you know, Liverpool's recent success or the kind of combination of, uh, you know, club with, with such a rich history with this big personality in modern football? Um, yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of everything. Like having spent time around Liverpool fans, around people who have very close associations with the club and so having written bits and pieces for Liverpool.com and being immersed in like a site that is, you know, purely geared, I guess, more toward the fan than um, a lot of a lot of football content. I think, yeah, just finding someone who not only is very likable in a number of ways, but also feels like he's in the right place. Like he feels like he belongs to the city of Liverpool as well as the club, which it's rare that you get that kind of good a fit and without losing something of who the person is. So I think from that point of view, it's just, yeah, as soon as I was approached the book, it felt really natural. It felt really easy to be able to kind of start with that and kind of kick on from it. I'd imagine that this barbecue with Klopp, there's probably a couple of bratwurst on the grill and, and whatnot, but uh, now uh, time for a, a bit of a game actually. And uh, rather than, uh, flipping the the script so to speak more accurately i guess we're going to flip the book on you tom so this game is called what would tom victor do uh yoni oh, yeah. and i have a few questions for you and going off of the the titles to the chapters in the book we're mm-hmm. going to pose those so chapter one the most important thing tom what can you simply not live without oh wow okay <laughs> um it feels like the most obvious cliche here but like football being able to not not necessarily even watching football i mean the uh having a break from it kind of april may last year when the premier league was suspended when there was nothing really going on i was okay with that and then by the time kind of september october rolled around and non-league football was back with fans i realized okay no it's the experience of going to the game that means the most to me that's the bit that i i need as part of my life so i live in southeast london which means Dulwich Hamlet, Peckham Town, both kind of walking distance from me and just being able to blow off a bit of steam during lockdown, go to the games, see the same people over and over, have that routine is, yeah, I've realised through that that, okay, no, this is something that's pretty important to me. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've missed and probably we've all missed to a certain extent, that that community feeling that only really going to a football game can give you. Um, chapter two is called Hugs and Handshakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dead or alive, without literally exhuming a corpse, who <laughs> would you like to hug or shake their hands? I mean, posing the dead or alive aspect, I feel like there's one name that jumps out at me straight away, which is Anthony Bourdain, whose work I've kind of immersed myself in pre-lockdown and over the last year even more so. Everything about what he does, I love and... Yeah, he's someone who I would have loved to have had the chance to meet if I could have done. I love that guy. I reckon even just as such a passionate individual as he was and loving yeah. travel like he did and immersing himself in culture, he probably would have been a decent guy to go to a go to a football game with. 
back in the day. On to mentality monsters, chapter three. So when it comes to, to work ethic, what's your greatest strength? Oh, um, I, I've been told that I am you know, useful for hitting every deadline. So I feel like within my line of work, that's, that's more important than it might be. Yeah, that's a tough one for, you know, a freelance journalist. <laughs> I should be able to pick myself up a lot more than, than in this spot. But yeah, I mean, I didn't expect to be having a job interview here. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry for yeah. putting you on the spot. No, that's yeah, that's all yeah, good. Again, yeah, again. Uh, <laughs> we're going to put you on the spot just a few more times. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's a few more chapters for you to get through. So <laughs> I'm getting ready. I'm stealing myself for it. Well, this one at least should be a lot less job interviewee. Um, the next <laughs> chapter is for the love of the game, um, and I suppose I, I'll split this into two sections. What type of footballer are you, and what type of football would you like to be? Okay. So I guess when I was kind of growing up playing Sunday league football, I was probably, a, well, I told myself that I modelled my game on like West Ham era Michael Carrick. So deep line playmaker. Um, I think I scored, never scored more than one goal a season um, because I didn't get in those positions. I was the guy kind of like admiring my passes because that was the end goal for me, just to admire my own passes. <laughs> um, if I could pick the sort of player I'd want to be, can I say like an Alan San Maximan type? I feel like that's fairly self-explanatory, you know, just someone who can, who can do what he wants whenever he wants to, but sometimes decides, yeah, I, I can wait. It's fine. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun, I think. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Carrick, criminally underrated. One of those players, unless you watch him week in, week out, you don't really appreciate the job that he does for the side. And on St. Maximan, yeah, what a, what an enigma. He's got a brilliant goal the other day. I won't ask you to replicate the celebration that he <laughs> afterwards, but instead I'll um, I'll move on to, to chapter five. Uh, I like it loud. So can we press you for, I guess, suppose, yeah, you're just your favourite song at the moment. Oh, wow, okay. Um, this is going to go very much against the... Uh the liking it loud aspect of it because it's 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 anything but but in terms of albums this year um like the new cassandra jenkins one is fantastic a big julian baker fan her new one is like on rotation quite a bit um which i realize as i'm saying this is very very distant from you know the, the heavy metal players that i have for Klopp in the book but yeah it's <laughs> that, that's what i've been kind of sticking with this year yeah Moving from music to food, the next chapter is The Taste of Success. Mm -hmm. um, and I have high hopes for your answer for this one, given okay. your interests. Um, what's your most impressive dish to make and what are you having to drink with it? Oh, so, yeah, I, I guess like I got a slow cooker just before lockdown last year. So I've been making good use of that. And one of my main rotations is a Mexican chicken dish. It's like kind of pulled chicken thigh, tomato, a lot of chili like fresh herbs etc nice. etc so in burritos tacos whatever i've been going back to that quite a bit i'm lucky to live opposite a great butcher as well so like i've been definitely sort of taking advantage of that shout out to flock and herd in peckham um in terms of what i'm drinking with it i'm gonna give another shout out you know um because <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm here i might as well um so, yeah, my friend Felix Cohen uh, runs a cocktail company called Manhattan's Project. They've been doing mail-order cocktails throughout the last few months. And 
yeah, it just makes a, a fantastic old-fashioned, fantastic Manhattan. I'd probably go for one of the two. It sounds good. I sort of bemoaned the lack of good Mexican food when I grew up in England, living so close to the border here in the States, we get a lot of it. And I know Yanni as well as someone who spent time in Mexico uh, is, is going to be partial to that. But on to chapter seven, getting your vote. And there might be sort of one answer that's <laughs> probably, I think, been at the forefront more recently, but you might have a different answer. So which current or former footballer would make a great politician, in your opinion, or even a great prime minister? <laughs> I mean, the, the obvious answer is uh, current leader of the opposition, Marcus Rashford. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it's hard to go beyond that. I'm trying to think. There, there have been some who, who I've looked at kind of over the years. I feel like um, I've read some worthy political comments from uh, Cristiano Lucarelli, the Italian former Livorno striker. Um, I would love to be able to quote some of that back at you now, but I can't. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, I can think of far more who would be a bad political leader than, than a good one, I think, uh, from what we've seen so far. But um, I, I mean, I have been like hugely impressed by what Marcus Rashford has been doing, like both in the forefront and seemingly behind the scenes as well, actually kind of getting people to take action, which, yeah. Yeah, it, it's been sort of beyond admirable what he's done over the last, especially over the last year or so. Uh, but maybe there is something to Italian footballers and politics mm -hmm. because was it a few years ago, Giorgio Chiellini also gave a very nuanced answer on the Brexit referendum, mm -hmm. which put to shame a lot of the <laughs> British footballers who were asked similar questions around that time uh, when the vote was happening. Um, but moving from politics to film, your final chapter is a Hollywood ending. So who plays Tom Victor in a Hollywood blockbuster movie? <laughs> I can't really give an answer to this without sounding like hugely arrogant. Well, it depends who you say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I've I've been given a lot of lookalikes in my life, and I think pretty much all of them are like just don't hold up to any scrutiny. But because this guy is one of those, um, again, I don't see it. But I I guess I go with Vance on Cassell because oh. you know. <laughs> Um, I, I, this is for want of a better answer. I will go with the guy who, um, I've been told I resemble, which, yeah. <laughs> He's not bad. I remembered, I think in school, even watching La N with, uh, yeah. with Vincent. And then of course he kind of, uh, popped up again in Black Swan in, in a big way. On from, I guess, fil French film stars back to across the pond to, to England. And, uh, we're going to chat about West Ham now. So. Yep. At the time of recording, uh, West Ham yesterday hung on to beat European place rivals Leicester 3-2 and are very much in with a shout at the top four where they currently sit in fourth position. So there's seven games left to play. Of course, a lot of things can change. But mm -hmm. Tom, in your lifetime, I suppose, sort of taking the whole COVID situation out of it, have you ever experienced a West Ham season like this one? I know the club finished, I think, fifth in 99 and seventh in 2016, but surely this is new territory. Yeah, um, at this stage of the season, yeah. I think the 2015-16 the season kind of probably hits the same levels in terms of excitement. It's a team that couldn't really defend. I think we conceded two or more goals in 16 different games that season and still, because we had Dimitri Payet playing for us, managed to turn that into, you know, two wins away from finishing top four that season. Um, this is obviously a little different by virtue of not being allowed to see the team in the stadium, but 
um, yeah, I'm just really not used to a West Ham team that is winning games by actually doing what it's trying to do. Like it feels like when West Ham have a good season, it's accidental, and this is not what's happening now. So I'm just going to enjoy it for as long as it goes on, and I still can't see a top four finish. But I, I think wherever we finish now, it's still, you know, start of the season, two games in, two defeats. Everyone's expecting relegation, so everything's an improvement on that. Obviously qualifying for Europe in whichever competition it is. And I, I still wouldn't rule out Champions League at all. I mean, you seem to go 3-0 up in every game now. So if you can keep <laughs> doing that and gradually learn to shit your pants less in the last 20 minutes, then you've, oh, you've got yeah, a I'm chance. going 3-0 up a little later, so there's less <laughs> in pants. I think that's a good tactic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but whichever way it happens, if it happens, um, it really would open the door to, to building on what looks a very balanced and promising squad. And your best players, the likes of Declan Rice, um, would more than likely stay after years of being linked with moves yeah. to so-called bigger clubs anyway. And you'll be in a position as well to pay whatever astronomical fee United demand for Jesse Lingard at this point. <laughs> um, where do you see West Ham going in terms of squad building? And crucially, do you trust the board and David Moyes to be smart in their decisions? <laughs> um I mean, I, I guess if you look back through the years, West Ham have not been a team that is known for making the smart decision in, in pretty much any any point of view. I think our record signing is a player who was signed after a great season in the front three and was just stranded on his own for 18 months and sold at a 20 million loss. So that kind of points to uh, the kind of business the club's been doing. Um, the issue with West Ham, the issue... It has always been the case with West Ham is, you know, on those occasions where we stumble upon someone who's good at their job, can we hang on to them? And so when it looked like relegation was going to happen last season, the biggest sort of element of dread was, you know, we, we just found this absolute gem in Thomas Socek in January. We're going to have him for six months. He's going to go somewhere else and be great. And same with Denver Bar when he actually did do that. So, yeah, I think it's, it's a case of keeping hold of, of the players who are the most important to the team. Rice, I'm still not convinced, sticks around. I guess we'll see uh, see what kind of bids come in for him and obviously where West Ham finish. But yeah, I mean, Sebastian has been sold at a loss. Philippe Anderson is still a West Ham player, technically. So this is what happens when we spend big. It, it rarely, if ever, works out. It seems like Rice might be a keen to to join his buddy Mount, depending on if Chelsea yeah. are keen to yeah, put, put the money where, where their mouth is. Um, Moyes obviously has to take massive plaudits for this campaign and seemingly sort of rediscovered his charm in an Everton 2.0 kind of scenario. But beyond the manager, um, we even yeah touched on the board briefly, but the owners have been you know much criticised down the years between signings, yeah. like you've mentioned, and even the move to the London Stadium, etc. So what role have David, David and even Karen played in this season's success, if any? And beyond that, can you put your finger on why things are going so right for West Ham currently? Um, so the theory that I've kind of been working through for this season is the sort of style of football that West Ham have been thriving on this season is the style of football that West Ham fans might not have the patience to endure had they been in the stadium from the start of the season. I mean, I've 
been watching West Ham on and off at the stadium for 25 years. I've been season ticket holder for the last sort of five or six, and I know how antsy our fans get. I know that a low possession game where the attacks are essentially hitting teams on the turnover, letting them have the ball, it's not something that fans are going to have a lot of patience with if it isn't coming off. Um, and, you know, even before there's a chance for it to come off or not come off, there will be kind of discontent based on what I've seen at least since the stadium moved probably before. So I think that does play a big part. I think having a few months to perfect a sort of setup where this is what Moyes wants to do with his team and he's going to be allowed to because there's not going to be any booing, there's not going to be anyone running onto the pitch with a corner flag in their hand. That obviously helps. Yeah, for whatever the reasons are, and I think that's a very strong theory. Um, I've been wondering the same, really, what is behind all the success. West Ham are flying and are in a completely unexpected position um, with just a handful of games remaining. As, as you said, kind of plays like Rice and Lingard, as well as Suchek, Antonio, among others, have delivered, I suppose, a level of performance and cons- consistency that few saw coming. And few saw it coming. Part of the reason is because in West Ham's recent history, it's been a story of full storms and players arriving with a lot of acclaim only to underwhelm players like Ale, who were bought for a, a record fee and it didn't quite fit, didn't quite work out in the end. Um, so for this section, in loving memory of the West Ham United we knew from the turn of the century <laughs> yeah. until 2020 and the second coming of David Moyes, we're going to try and build a flop West Ham 11 position by position. Oh, that should be easy. Um, Uh, yeah I suppose a team that encapsulates and defines West Ham for the past 20 years and we'll start in goal Um, I can give you a few options feel free to throw in your own if I've missed any out I think you'll probably have have identified the right guy (laughs) Um, well okay so we've got David James here uh, Roy Carroll Stephen Bywater Joe Hart um, and of course the much missed Roberto yeah Um, who would you like to be your number one for this team? I mean, there are plenty of kind of worthy suggestions there. I think it's a bit harsh on David James, who, you know, West Ham's struggles with him in goal were not really his fault for the most part. I mean, Joe Hart, I will always be frustrated by because he forced Adrian, one of my favourite West Ham players of this generation, out of the club, essentially. Uh, but it's Roberto. Like, it's uh, It's a player who came into the team with West Ham sitting on 11 points in six games. And by the time Fabianski came back into the team, I don't think West Ham had picked up another 11 points. And it's a guy who not only made some errors, but, you know, seemed to have an error in him every minute of every game, let alone every game. It's a guy who uh, you you struggle to understand what the manager saw in him to bring into the club. And it's a shame, but... Yeah, um, can't look past Roberto. <laughs> yeah. Kai, I guess in your years watching Premier League, is there a goalkeeper who's looked more out of their depth and more prone to dropping a, a, a terrible error than Roberto? It's genuinely impressive how woeful his perform- you know, few performances for the club were. Um, I, obviously, yeah, Joe Hart, kind of the fall from grace is a different trajectory, but in terms of just dross um roberto has to has to take that one uh so i guess he's our keeper and i'll i'll pose the right backs to both of you and i guess um i'll bring yanni into it first and then um 
Tom, you can you kind of have the final say on right back. So I've got Guy Demel, Julian Faubert, John either Paintsel or Pantsel, depending on the paperwork, uh, Lars Jakobsen, Sam Byram, and Alvaro Arbeloa. Uh, Yanni, for you, is there a standout, underwhelming right back? It's quite a, an eclectic list there. I suppose you could say that for, for most positions, but there's a mix of sort of young players who promised a lot and didn't deliver and players who were slightly over the hill and didn't deliver and players who were just bang average and didn't deliver. Um, I think in terms of sort of the soul of West Ham, for me, it has to be Julian Faubert. Just in terms of the personal delusions of grandeur and that weird loan spell at Real Madrid and everything sort of, I don't know, it, it's just he encapsulates to me as an outside spectator um, what West Ham, I suppose, was, especially at that time around the Gianfranco Zola era. Uh, so Faubert would be my choice. Uh, what about you, Tom? Um, yeah, I mean, Faubert has been a guy who I have defended to the hilt as a massively un- under, um, underestimated, maybe um, unfairly maligned player. <laughs> it's a guy who did his Achilles within one friendly of joining the club and was kind of playing catch up after that. Obviously the Real Madrid thing is going to colour a lot of people's opinion of him. But for me, the enduring memory is uh, a couple of months towards the end of Zola's reign where he played two, produced two of the best assists that I've seen from any West Ham player uh, of any era. So kind of a slide rule through goal for Carton Cole and a cross and right for Elan in that kind of battle against relegation in that horrible, horrible West Ham team, 2009-10. So my pick is going to be the other former Real Madrid player. It's going to be Arbeloa. I remember going to Howling Hops in Hackney Wick, sort of around the corner from the stadium uh, after a game last last season, possibly the start of last season, um, and seeing someone wearing a West Ham shirt with Arbeloa on the back and having no idea what was going on. And I say this as someone who... Again, we may come to him later on, but someone who once owned a West Ham shirt with Revrov on the back. Even that doesn't seem as ridiculous as, as Arbeloa being there after his, uh, I think it's three games, three defeats. And a man who a few months later said, okay, yeah, no, playing for West Ham made me realise that I needed to retire from all football. So I think that, <laughs> I think that paints the picture of what his spell was. Fair enough. I'll defer to you on that. Arbelo can get in this team. Um, moving across to centre-back, which Kai and I were discussing before, was quite a slightly more difficult position to pick loads of players for. I think because West Ham have had relatively established centre-backs for quite a lot of the last um, couple of decades. But to throw some names in and pick two from these, Manuel da Costa, Callum Davenport, Jonathan Spector, uh, Ragnvald Sommer, Emmanuel Pogatetz, Roger Johnson... Jose Font, Mauricio Tarico, Hayden Fox um, is another option. Tom, who are your instinctive picks for that position? Yeah, you're right that it's it's kind of it's a tough one. It's a, a big mix of players who, you know, made a, a lasting impact in only a handful of games at centre back rather than anything else. Um, I would put Tarico in the conversation for left backs rather than centre backs. Because on the basis of the 25 minutes that he played for us being at left back before he ripped up his contract and saying, yeah, no, sorry, guys, like, I'm not going to play again. I'm, I'm a broken man. You you do not need to pay me for this. 
But yeah, I think Roger Johnson. Um, it's it's hard to look past the the game against Man City, the League Cup semi final, where there's you know the, the famous clip of him just backtracking, 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 and just letting Yayatori walk forward and pass the ball into the net. I think he gets one of the spots. Um, I think in terms of yeah, kind of your classic West Ham signing of a guy who, oh. Our manager recognises his name because he played in the Premier League a few years ago and we're going to see what he can do now. It's probably Pogates, who the only memory I have of his spell was him coming off the bench in a game against Spurs. I believe we were ahead at the time or we were level with about three minutes to go and we lost that game. It's the, the one with Gareth Bale's famous last-minute winner. Mm. And I was living in Tottenham at the time, so obviously that made it a little more painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Pogates can, uh, can get the other centre-back spot, I think. All right, Kai, any, any thoughts, any other contenders there for you? No, I think that's quite a nice left foot, right foot balance of two rubbish centre-backs for West Ham. <laughs> uh, Roger Johnson, who famously showed up drunk to Wolves training uh, after being quite good for Cardiff and Birmingham in his early stages of his career. And then, yeah, Pogatetz, decent at Middlesbrough, always like kind of, I guess, a cult footballer when you were a kid growing up just because of how he looked, I'll just say it. Um, but otherwise, um, I think we can move on to the left backs. And what I do have is the likes of Razvan Rat, Harita Elunga, Walter Lopez, who honestly, that was a bit of a mystery to me, but uh, I did a bit <laughs> of research. Otherwise, uh, Fabio De Prella, Pablo Armero, and everyone's favorite pundit, Patrice Evra. Um, mm-hmm. Tom, yeah. who, who's I getting the left back yeah. spot? Um, I, I feel. Fabio De Prella's being treated a bit unfairly here. He was uh, he was 19 or 20 when he came through, played a few games, and then disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, but along a similar vein, um, like I'm not sure anyone can say with confidence that Walter Lopez exists or ever existed. <laughs> so I feel like, yeah, the guy who was signed and whose signing was considered so questionable that Alan Kerbisley left the club, um, I think he... You know, he's probably worthy of his spot in this team. It's the guy who, yeah, he, we saw photos of him. We thought this could just be some some guy they've taken a photo from a modeling suit and pretended it's this new signing from Uruguay. Um, so, yeah, Walter Lopez um, edges out Mauricio Tarico, in, in my view. Although, probably want to put in a shout for a man you haven't mentioned who like jumped out the first time that you mentioned that you're going to be doing this. Um, again, it's from the, the dark days of the championship and it is Wayne Quinn who we signed from Newcastle in maybe 2003, who I just remember watching him play a couple of games at that level and thinking, okay, I'm not sure what he does. <laughs> and yeah, I know, I know that could probably apply for apply to, you know, a 38 year old or whatever it was, Patrice Evra when he signed, but yeah. Am I completely inventing in my mind Wayne Bridges' loan spell at West Ham? <laughs> You're not, because you will remember his debut against Arsenal. Right, right, yes. Yeah, he played <laughs> that. Did he give away a penalty or make a horrendous error or something? He was, if I remember rightly, he was at fault for all three goals. Ah, okay. Um, he, I didn't know if that was, was a fever dream or got And could not handle him. But okay. I did then... Um, I ended up meeting Wayne Bridge at a Poker Stars event a few years later, where he seemed just like an absolutely lovely man. Played some beer pong with him, and on those grounds, I am willing to overlook all his ills of his time at West Ham. <laughs> I guess the the stock image footballer Walter Lopez pips him to to the left back spot. Mm-hmm. So I guess we got the back five. Yoni, if you want to 
bring in the midfield. Yeah, uh, so we'll start on the right-hand side again. Why not? Um, and the names we have here are Savio Nisarenko, Freddie Jumberg for his one-year spell yeah. there, Pablo Barrera, Victor mm-hmm. Moses on one of his infinite <laughs> loan spells at other Premier League clubs, um, and Sofian Feguli. Okay. The guy who I had in mind for this is has not come up, which I ah. guess it is a pretty stacked field here. Um, but I'm, I'm going to go past, um, again, like, I feel like the fact that this guy played for us not in the Premier League is probably a big part of it. Um, I feel like the version of David Bentley that West Ham signed oh, God. might have to be yes. the one that goes in on the right here. Um, although Jungberg was, you know, very similar. Um, a guy who was clearly extremely broken. It's very difficult to figure out how he passed the medical to join the club in the first place and then left after a year. But... Yeah, I'm going to give it David Bentley on the grounds that Savio, it's not his fault that he ended up at West Ham. He was he was not a good footballer. His later career, it feels like he's he's had some issues off the pitch, which maybe elicit a bit of sympathy. And he didn't ask to be transferred for nine million or whatever it was. He, he probably didn't even ask to leave Germany or no, he was in Italy at the time, wasn't he? But yeah, he seemed to be, he was doing fine at Brescia. And then suddenly he's just thrown into that basket case of a West Ham squad. Yeah, I, I suppose it's difficult with a lot of these players to work out if they were, you know, bad for West Ham or if West Ham was just the wrong club at the wrong time for them. And they're viewed pretty unfairly um, as a result. Uh, but David Bentley, I'd completely forgotten about Kite. As an Arsenal fan, you will have memories of him both playing for and scoring against Arsenal. But a player who, fell out of love with football, probably not long after his spell at West Ham. And again, I'm not saying that's causation. <laughs> um, but that doesn't happen that often, I suppose, uh, or it's difficult for us to understand. What do you make of his career? And do you think him worthy of a spot in the side? Yeah, by virtue of the fact that I'd forgotten that he even <laughs> played for West Ham, I think he has to be in with a shout. Obviously, the Savio thing's just bizarre. I think there's even, I think he even like went missing yeah. for a spell of time. There was something like that, which is, again, maybe a bit, kind of disturbing story who knows yeah sounds like like you said had some off the field issues but yeah we'll give it to Bentley who seemingly has resurrected his not footballing career but is I think a decently successful real estate um, developer or something like that these days and I might might even have like a pub in, in Spain something like that so he's he's moved on but um, he's going to be stuck on the right wing of, of this uh, underwhelming West Ham 11 into the center of the park and we'll give it like a defensive midfielder and a center midfielder who's a bit more creative so on the defensive side of things i've got the options of valon berami uh javier mascherano alex song radislav kovac alu diara havard nordvite and carlos sanchez uh, Tom is one of those guys that stand out, or do you have another name? Oh, no, you, I think you've you've covered off all the all the ones that should be there, but I feel you know, very harsh on Song and Barami there. I just feel like the reputation of those lads, you know, Barami came in, in theory, he was potentially like a top four footballer. I want to say Arsenal were linked with the guy for a while, and then Song coming from yep. from Barcelona. But you saw a lot more of the guys well, play. Alex so Song, his first season at West Ham was phenomenal. Um, I mean, there have been a few players where you see them come in, you think, okay, how's this guy ended up at our club when he can still play at that level? And Alex Song was definitely one of those. Barami was just kind of a bit of a cult hero, I think, at West Ham, the sort of guy who will, 
like willingly kick the shit out of any opponent and then put on his innocent face, which we love. I think of those, I think Mascherano feels like the standout just about um, on the basis of, you know, not only what he did for us, but what he did after. It, it made it look like he was uh, he was just waiting. He, he decided, oh, I, I could play, you know, top level football, but I don't want to do it for this club. Like they haven't treated me well. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them anything back. And um I think his final game for us came on in like the eighty third, eighty fourth minute and still managed to be at direct fault for a goal, which is an achievement. Um something I mean something Carlos Sanchez has probably done as well to be fair, but Mascherano just about edges him out. Johnny? Yeah. Is Mascherano the, the South American or is Carlos Sanchez the South American who's going <laughs> to get this spot? Um, I think for all the reasons Tom's explained, Mascherano should be in this team. And especially because of the sort of disparate nature of how bad he was for West Ham and how subsequently world-class he was at basically everywhere else he played. It feels very, very West Ham for the purposes of this team. Carlos Sanchez, I will say, I simply... like. I, either he just never played well in England for Villa or West Ham, um, or just Colombia never really watched his performances because he seems to be one of those players who, every time I saw him play, was never good, never at the standards that a Premier League midfielder should be, but consistently starts for Colombia or started at least. Yeah. Um, and there must be something to him, something to his game, which other people saw and appreciated. But there was a performance from Aston Villa at the Emirates when they lost, I think, 5-0 in about 2015. And Carlos Sanchez started for them. And generally, I've not seen a worse performance from a Premier League player than Carlos Sanchez in that game. Um, Look, he could be back next season. He's at Watford now, right? So he could be back next season. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I hope he is. I, 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 hope he, I genuinely hope he comes back and has a good Premier League season just to, so that we yeah. can see what the fuss is about. Because... Oh, yeah, no, I, I wanted him to be a success when he signed in. I thought, yeah, he wasn't great at Villa, but like neither was Idrissa Gay, neither was Adama Traore, and they're not bad players. Like, yeah. I, it felt like that Villa team was the problem, not the players who were involved. Um, but, yeah, he's just, he didn't do it for us. And also managed to uh, get a red card in the third minute of one of the first World Cup games with VAR by just handing the ball and got one. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, against Japan, was it? Perhaps yeah, it. 2018 World Cup. Um, yeah, I, I think Mascherano does edge out Carlos Sanchez, though. Um, so I guess moving on to the other more advanced sense midfield options. Um, again, a, a, a real mix of types of players here as well. Jack Wilshire, uh, Yaniv Katan, Nigel <laughs> Kwaji, Kieran Dyer, Ravel Morrison, Antonio Nocerino, Sami Nasri. Oh man, yeah, the rich tapestry. Uh, I'm going to rule out Ravel because he was phenomenal for about ten games, and you know I feel like he's uh, taken himself out of the wrecking there. And I'm sure we all we all heard his interview with Rio Fernand, where gets a bit more of an idea of what happened there, and feels like yeah, maybe maybe there are more factors at play than than what he did in the pitch in terms of why it didn't work out for him at West Ham. I remember Yoniv Katan as a winger for us, but if he's, I, I, I don't know if he's played more central for Israel or if you guys know kind of a bit more about him in that sense. That was, um, that was just Wikipedia. Was oh, okay. Wikipedia. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. 
Um, I, I I just noticed the you you both having plausibly Israeli names, so you might know a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do and we should, yeah. but we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Will should. Yeah, again, one of those players who signed to West Ham. You, you want the best for him. You really you really want him to succeed. And well, yeah, we all know what's happened with him. Um, I'm trying to think. I'm I'm feeling like we've missed someone here. I'm feeling like there's probably someone from a little earlier on who, uh, yeah, who West Ham brought in who just didn't do it in any regard. Um, although the other option is, you know, you look at you look at how West Ham are playing at the moment with your two sitting midfielders, and do we just want to throw in Sanchez or throw in Northfight in the other sort of central <laughs> midfield spot there? I think that. I feel like you've got a more kind of coherent team in terms of failures rather than in terms of positions. Uh, but come back to me on that one. Um, I'm trying to wrap my brains like this. I'll throw in another name and then I'll ask Kai who, if you have any kind of uh, opinions on this, Hayden Mullins. How, like, how is he regarded as a West Ham player? Um, he No, he's, he's regarded as, I mean, from the outside, he's regarded as the guy that kept Mascherano from the first team, which is... Um, true. I mean, in fairness, uh, no, he's um, he's got a, a good place with West Ham fans from helping us get back to the Premier League in 2005 and in that first season back. Um, I feel like, to be honest, I feel like West Ham might have held on in that cup final in 2006 if he'd not been suspended for the game. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's he's well liked at the club um, and just, yeah, West Ham kind of outgrew what he could offer really um he like there's no will when he left yeah that's fair kai how how do you see the second center mid position here you know from watching wilshire boss it against barcelona at the emirates to where he's sort mm-hmm. of more these days i know he's <coughs> back at bournemouth maybe again he's back at bournemouth, yeah um, that seems to be a good place for him but it, it didn't really work at, at west ham but i think that's a decent shout carlos sanchez just have two dms if you if something comes to you later, Tom, just just shout yeah. it out. But for oh. now, I reckon, um, yeah, maybe Carlos gonna, Sanchez. Go on. I'm going to pull up some Wikipedia pages in the yeah, background. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do a bit of research, and um, for now, it's Mascherano and, and Sanchez. And like I said, we can come back to it. But we'll move on to the left wing. And uh, if Wilshire wasn't enough of a Arsenal connection, my first choice for both of you guys is going to be Luis Beaumorte. <laughs> and then we've got Gokan Torre. I've kind of taken a liberty with this guy to put him out on the wing. Uh, it's Mr. Banned from Football, Victor Abina. We've got uh, Matt Jarvis up there alongside Nene. Again, maybe not. I probably played decently. I don't know. But again, came with quite a good reputation. And then just for the price tag, I'm going to throw Andre Ayu in there as well. Tom, uh, mm. which of those is going to be your left winger? Um, yeah, Ayu's another kind of, I mean, I, I'm caveating what I'm going to say with the fact that it's going to be massively hypocritical. But Ayu is another one who showed up, um, immediately got injured, and then that kind of clouded what he did after that. However, I'm going to go for a guy who did the exact same thing in Gurkhan Torre. Uh, <laughs> who, um, yeah, I think, you know, we talk about players, we talk about Mascherano having, uh, you know, having joined West Ham, um, with that reputation, done nothing, and then realised that reputation at his next club. Um, Gokhan was the opposite. He, he joined West Ham having achieved 
like you came through the Chelsea Academy for a bit. You achieved at Besiktas. Uh, Bilic knew him well. You set up a, the winning goal in the first game at the London Stadium and then seemed to disappear off the face of the earth after that, or even in the middle of that season. There was, uh, yeah, the fans kind of came up with a chant for him to the tune of the Dimitri Payet one, which was less than complimentary um, and probably, like, you know, came from a place of accuracy yet again. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how many games he played for us in the end, maybe sort of four or five. Also within this, I, I do want to kind of come out as the Nene apologist. Um, it's a guy who came into a team that was just winding things down before Allardyce left. I don't think anyone could have entered that space and achieved anything, really. Um, the fact that he was at least trying, is probably something in there. Is uh, Gokhan your man as well, Yoni? Yeah, I can't argue with any of that, really. And I do just remember him coming in with some expectation and being entirely average. And then, yeah, like him, him disappearing, him just suddenly not being there, despite all this acclaim. And despite, I think, him joining in the same season that Payet left. So in theory, there was a space in the team that opened up for him. Um, mm. But yeah, for, for a ringer, he seemed to not be able to do any of the things that a ringer should be good at. Um, yeah, it seems fair. He can cross, I guess, but he can really. I, I yeah. don't think sort of run. No, yeah, like like the running, sort of dribbling or taking on players. I, I like. I never, I never really saw it. Um, so very happy for Gokantore to be in there, and the other players, players like Matt Jarvis, from my point of view, seems like a very decent player for West yeah. Ham at the time. Matt Jarvis was was a good player for Wolves. He was just hugely frustrating for West Ham. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an inverted winger who didn't have the dummy moves taken outside onto his wrong foot. So people figured that out pretty quickly <laughs> and you can guess what happened from that. Uh, Bonotti, yeah, towards the end was a complete liability for West Ham really, but he he played his part in the survival 2007. So I think he's uh, he's off the hook for that. I think Jarvis might have peaked at the right time because I think I think he might even have gotten a, an England cap or two. He did when he was at Wolves, yeah. yeah. Or maybe his first season at West Ham, yeah. So he'll always have that. <laughs> he will. Um, okay, so moving on to our final position, and this is one that, Tom, you've written uh, yeah. a, a quite extensive piece about, and there are <laughs> many, many names that can be included and are included here. So um, I'll, I'll try and get through them. Um, Diafra Sacco, Freddie Piccion, Jordan Hugill, Benny McCarthy, Nicky Maynard, Emmanuel Emanike, Guillermo Franco, Mido, Jonathan Caleri, Marco Borriello, Modibo Maega, Diego Tristan, Kepa Blanco, Marouan Shamak, Enna Valencia, Sebastian Haller, and Ilan. And there are probably 10 or so other strikers who could oh, yeah, reasonably that's... include it. Um, so feel free to, to cool. shout any of them out. No, no, that's, uh, that's the abridged version, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I th- yeah, I think I've got my two from those. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's two from three. Um, Mido is is in the team straight off the bat. Um, a guy who just seemingly both didn't want to be there and didn't have anything to offer when he was brought into the first team. Um, stuck around for a few months. Did nothing beside miss a penalty in one game. <laughs> and I, I then saw him a few years later just playing centre-back for an Africa Legends team in the <laughs> 18, maybe. Wow. Um, so, yeah, uh, Mido's in there. Second spot, I feel like 
in terms of expectation versus reality, uh, Jonathan Kajeri was, you know, came with such high hopes. He scored that Rabona for things of Boca Juniors. Thought, oh, okay, this guy is the kind of idiot maverick striker who I tend to like <laughs> normally. Uh, and then I saw him play, and um, just, he wasn't the interesting kind of bad, which was the problem. Although I did see him again try Rabona when six yards out in front of goal in the middle. Um, <laughs> which, if you felt like Eric Lamella's Rabonas were gratuitous, that, that kind of takes <laughs> another level. Um, but I think he just misses out. I think Benny McCarthy takes the second spot purely for not only doing nothing in his first season, but then sticking around and to the point where I think no one had realised he was still at the club. And then he, he randomly showed up in, in a kind of a midweek game coming on as an 80th minute sub. You think, oh yeah, that guy, why wasn't he playing? Oh, that's why he wasn't playing. Yeah, okay. So yeah, two guys signed in the same window. You know, when, when Ilan, a guy who played, I think, 11 games for West Ham was the standout of the three January signings, that pretty tells you enough about the other two. I don't know yeah. if Benny McCarthy overachieved at Blackburn, but it didn't work out uh, at West Ham at all. I realise now I have well, three I Champions League winners in this team, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just didn't work yeah. out at, at Upton Park, I guess. But on the likes of um, Elan and even um, Guillermo Franco and like um, Kepa Blanco, David Di Michele, who we didn't yeah. even mention, <laughs> I think West Ham, they managed to get a good amount out of some of these guys who, who weren't actually brilliant footballers. It was kind of the opposite for oh, some of them. They actually had, maybe overachieved. Yeah. Tim McKay had a good few weeks. Another guy who I don't think we mentioned um, is Marco Borriello, who I think he, he was on there. He was, on, was, it a loan, was it a loan from Roma or something like that? Or a loan the from... same window, we got Antonio Notorino and Pablo Almero, who both came up. Um, but yeah, Borriello, I think, played like maybe an hour for West Ham <laughs> and immediately got injured. And yeah. Seemingly though, I think Borriello has an alternate career as a, as a model. I think yes, I've seen him in I some, think that's some right, yeah. publications. <laughs> Speaking of uh, models, it was uh, Emma Nike who divorced Miss Nigeria to marry next year's Miss oh, Nigeria, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> which is a nice story, but I don't know if he, if he's going to make it into the team. I think what you mentioned uh, between um, Mido and uh, you said Kayeri, yeah, he's the, the Rabona guy, I guess. I couldn't look further than, than those two. Um, so maybe those are the ones. Yanni, do you have an opinion on, on a strike partner for Mido? Uh, Mido and McCarthy sounds very, very apt for this team. And I think we're at the club, maybe within a year of each other as well. And I suppose when I think about this West Ham team and sort of the the nature of the players we're selecting. That era of West Ham, the late noughties, mm-hmm. is when everything was especially disappointing and dark around the club just before um, the relegation. Um, so I can't argue with any of that. I suppose every team needs a manager and we haven't prepped for this. Um, but <laughs> if there is one manager who's, who's coached West Ham over the last couple of decades to manage this team that kind of would send this team out to be as disappointing as their potential suggests they could be, who would that be for you? That is a tough one. I mean, I guess I guess the way of looking at this is, you know, West Ham got relegated in 2011. And for some reason, everyone was surprised. <laughs> um, if, as if the previous year had not happened, as if West Ham had not stayed up with a game to spare, despite only getting 35 points and then probably weakened the squad. 
So I guess, I mean, the obvious choice would be to say Avram Grant for, you know, his role in that relegation. Although then you do also have, I mean, I think the worst half season I've seen from West Ham was the kind of January to May of Allardyce's final season when he knew he was going, we knew he was going, the players were certain he was going. Um, I think I saw us win a game that season. Might have even been the previous season. It was around that time I saw us beat Hull City and our fans booed the team off after a win. So I feel like later Allardyce has, is not without his merits, but it's probably Avram Grant for this one. Yeah, I guess I would just from the outside with the reputation that he came in with and I think some of the funds that he had at his disposal, Pella, Pellegrini, but mm-hmm. I think, yeah, Allardyce, I mean, it's always fun to kind of shit on Allardyce. So yeah, we'll, we'll throw him in there, but <laughs> I guess let's do a quick run through of, of the, the 11 and in goal is Roberto at right back. We've got Alvaro Arbeloa. That would be, I suppose, one of the champions league winners. Then um, center backs are Emmanuel Pogatetz and Roger Johnson. Um, we got the, mystery of Walter Lopez at left back, uh, right wing Bentley, another Champions League winner in the middle of the park, Javier Mascherano alongside Carlos Sanchez, who I don't think has ever yeah, played a good game in England. On the left, we've got Gokan Torre, as well as, uh, I guess, yeah, this is the other Champions League winner in Benny McCarthy and Mido up top managed by Sam Allardyce. And again, sort of that team in its well, forget Roberto, but otherwise all of those players on form aren't aren't bad players at all. But they I have mean, Allardyce, Allardyce had some good years at West Ham. I want to specify that it is twenty fifteen Sam Allardyce that we're talking about here, not not the man who took us up or kept us up, but the one who yeah, just oversaw some of the worst football I've seen. You know. I can't imagine what it'd have been for a neutral to take in any of the games from that part of the season. Yeah. I was also after like a good start that year. Oh yeah, West Ham we were, time we were in the top four. Yeah, at some point. Yeah, well, we'll um, see if he can work his magic for for West Brom. I think they have a couple of games in hand, although Newcastle have started to pull away. Um, yes, I don't think he'll be able to keep them up. But it would be if anyone can do it. I guess Big Sam maybe can. They do it. they were two 0 up as we started recording against yeah. Southampton. I have no idea how that game's turned out, but yeah, yeah, they thrashed Chelsea the other day yes. too. So he's he's definitely made an impact whether or not it'll be enough to keep the baggies in the, in the premier league we'll see but i reckon on that note that's about as much time as we have for today so i want to say thanks to yoni for being my co-host today and an extra special thank you to tom victor uh, tom we hope you enjoyed being our guest and for our listeners how can they best follow you and keep up with all of your work oh no it's, it's been my pleasure um i guess um twitter i am just at tom victor there's a uh, periodically updated link tree on there where people will be able to find some of my work otherwise yeah i guess i will i'll be regularly putting stuff out at the moment i'm working on some non-football projects so hopefully be back on the football train in the next few months and i i wish i had more to plug by my book i guess <laughs> thanks again tom it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast with us um Maybe if, if another book it comes out, we'll, we'll get you back on to delve inside the mind of who knows, uh, not Jurgen Klopp this time, but maybe David Moyes, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, yeah. good material at the minute. Um, <laughs> uh, we've, yeah, loved having you with us, Tom. Thanks again. As for our end of social media and whatnot, please do check out the website. That's unitedmatesfp.com. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at unitedmatesfp. 
And if you happen to feel like putting some faces to these voices, make sure to check us out on YouTube. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast and don't forget to hit that subscribe button while you're at it. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other as well. Goodbye.